This is the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers, helping you prioritize your health, happiness and well-being so that you can thrive in the classroom and in life. I'm your host, Ellen Ronalds Keane, reminding you that you're a person first and a teacher second and you are allowed to look after you. This episode of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast is brought to you by the 30 Days of Self-Care Challenge, a workbook and private podcast audio course. Are you ready to build a daily self-care habit? The 30 Days of Self-Care Challenge contains 30 days of self-care prompts for tired, depleted teachers to refill their tanks and cultivate a daily well-being ritual. In the program, you will get a calendar of self-care prompts and a workbook, as well as a private podcast audio course that will arrive in your podcatchers. And there's also a transcript of the audio for those who like to read as well. In just 15 minutes per day, you can create a new self-care practice that supports your well-being as a person first and a teacher second, because you are so worthy of your own care. Find out more at selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash challenge. Hello and welcome back to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. This is a fantastic interview, this episode, with Meg Durham from Open Mind Education. Depending how long you've been listening, you may remember Meg from way back in Season 3, Episode 7, and I'm so thrilled to have her back on the podcast. Meg has also just launched a podcast of her own. It's called School of Wellbeing, so um, I will pop a link to that in the description of this episode as well, so you can go and get listening to it. And you can also, if you follow her on Instagram, I'm sure there'll be links there as well. So in this episode, Meg tells us about her journey over the last few years integrating well-being into her life, coming from a place of knowing a lot about well-being and having it all kind of sorted out, but then having to learn to apply it in new and very challenging circumstances. We talk about the reality of the process of change being really messy (laughs) and how teachers don't really like that, (laughs) as well as how teacher uh, well-being plays out in schools and the importance of buy-in from staff when you're implementing school wellbeing programs, how long they really take to embed, plus the two approaches of proactiveness and learned helplessness that both Meg and I have observed in schools and teachers. Meg then shares with us a framework that I have found so helpful, and I hope you will too. She tells us about the five P's that hold us back and the five C's that help us change. It is a brilliant conversation and I really think you will enjoy. Hello, Meg. Welcome back to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here with you, Ellen. I'm excited too. I just looked it up and it has been about three and a half years since you were on last time. So it was episode seven of season three back in April of 2018. I'll definitely link to that episode in the description of this one so people can go back and and check that out as well if they want to re-listen because it was a good one. But just just for people who haven't listened or it's been a while since they've heard from you, uh, remind us who you are and what you do. <laughs> well, I'm Meg Durham and I'm a wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. So I work in schools, mostly now with staff and parents, and I also work in organisations and community groups to share wellbeing education that makes sense. 
that's practical and you can apply the next moment. Mm, I love that. And you you know, you started your career as a as a teacher and have had a few twists and turns on that road. So you've got lots to share and you it's open mind education is your is your business, right? Absolutely. Yes, I've taught in schools with Two and a half thousand students right down to a school with 12 and worked in metropolitan and country. So I've had a real experience of what it's like to teach and work with schools of all sizes and in different systems. Yeah. Yeah. A real breadth of experience, which is good. So tell us a little bit about your journey, I suppose, integrating well-being into your life because we, you know, we all have to go on this journey and and it's a it's a constantly evolving you know path of being a human learning to actually apply like we can know things but then we have to actually do them and turns out that's hard right absolutely tell us about that yeah so the last time we spoke i was living in country new south wales and i had just had my first son so he was almost one And since then, I've had another son and we have moved now to Geelong. But that process wasn't straightforward. When we were living in country New South Wales, we were living, to give people an idea, an hour to the closest Woolies, you know, an hour to the GP to get to uh, a major hospital would be two and a half hours. You know, so we're quite geographically isolated and having one son it was manageable we could make it work we didn't have any family around uh, to support in that day-to-day but then we fell pregnant with our second and our second pregnancy wasn't straightforward you know pregnancy is another opportunity for us to learn all these different skills of navigating life as it is ain't that the truth (laughs) you know you're right in it at the moment we have an idea about life and then reality comes along. And throughout that pregnancy, I had to get fortnightly scans. And so that required me to drive to Melbourne, which was about a five and a half hour trip one way. So fortnightly down to Melbourne. Luckily, my parents live in Melbourne. And so I'd stay with them for the night, then turn around and come back. So I did that fortnightly for the duration of my pregnancy. And that was exhausting on a physical level, but then on an emotional level, it was really hard because we had so many unknowns in that pregnancy and that was tough. It was really, really hard to be able to navigate that period of time and I called upon all of my wellbeing knowledge to just get through every two weeks. So it was just get to the next scan, just get to the next scan and we got through and the pregnancy ended up finishing perfectly you know birth went well uh, and our son has a hearing loss as a result of some of the complications that we had and a hearing loss is a very manageable disability that someone will have it is very straightforward you know you know in the world of teaching it can be quite hard when you think about additional needs because it's really hard to know what's within someone's capability and what's not but with hearing loss it's quite simple in a sense that it's quite black and white Because you go, you get a uh, level of hearing and then you can then move forward knowing exactly what you're dealing with. But the challenge for us was because where we lived, it took two and a half hours 
just to get to the closest Australian hearing. Yeah, you went, there were no services where you were. <laughs> no services. So that's two and a half hours one way. Yeah, for a little bab. For a little baby. And remembering that by this stage I just had a two-year-old who was <laughs> very, very energetic. And so I was navigating this period of um, specialist appointments, living isolated on a farm, having an active two-year-old. Our closest daycare was also an hour. So the drop-off, you know, it's a two-hour round trip. And all of these things were happening. My husband was working as hard as he could. He was helping as much as he could. But I got to a point where I just realised I can't make this work. This is so hard. And too many factors all adding up. Too many factors. You know, when it comes to stress, it's not often one thing. It's the layers. Absolutely. Of thing after thing after thing. And I just got to a point where I thought I can make most things work, but this is not workable anymore. The cost of trying to make this situation work is too high. I'm absolutely exhausted And it was a time for me to really call upon all of the things that I have learned and everything that I had studied in the last 10 years and really put it into practice because I didn't know what was next. There was no certainty. Which is a scary place to be when you're thinking, well, hang on, I can only handle so much. Like, Well, like you said, with stress, it's not just one thing. It's one thing after another and one thing we can handle and then the next thing we can handle and then the next thing we can handle and eventually it all adds up and something has to change, but but you don't know what's next. That's scary. It's so scary, Ellen. And the thing that I've noticed about getting older and chatting about this with my colleagues and my friends is the older you get, the harder the problems become. There's no simple, oh, yeah, I'll just do this. It's like, ooh, what's next here? I don't know what's next. I don't know what it looks like. I've never been here before. There's a lot of people relying on this. A lot of ramifications. Yes, the consequences are so great. It's not like when I was in the start of my teaching degree and I could just go back to my parents' house and have a cupcake and have a bit of a chat and it all felt better. Yep. You know, it's like, oh, where are we living, the finances, What do we want for our future? Where do we want children to go to school? What do I want for my work? I want to be doing meaningful work. So I had this period of time where I didn't know what the future held. There was no certainty, but I knew that where I was wasn't it. Yeah. So that's often when people come to you and I for coaching. That's right. (laughs) I don't know what's next, but this isn't it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we all get to these points in our life where we feel like, I don't know what's next, but this isn't it. And I think that is enough to get curious about, well, what are my possible futures? Yes, and it can be really exciting if we let it. You know, I think we need to acknowledge that it's scary and and none of us like uncertainty, but also that there are possibilities. You know, we don't have to stay stuck. So we can actually, yeah, face those all those possible options and go, right, let's decipher this future pathway that I that I kind of get to build myself. Absolutely. And it's completely exciting and completely daunting because it's up to you. It's up to you where you're going to direct your life. And a way that helps me make decisions is I just sit quietly and think to myself, what would it be like in 12 months if I didn't change anything versus what would it be like in 12 months if I did 
start to make change now? And often the way that I feel in my body tells me the answer because one is heavy and hard and almost feel trapped and another is freedom, opportunity, something different. So taking that time to when you get to those moments of, I don't know, and tapping into the possibility of the future. So that's the point where I got to and I didn't know what was happening in the future. And so what I chose to do, and I always do, is go back to the battery. So they're the five key elements that I teach is every 24 hours, have you had enough sleep, movement, nutrition, rest, and quality connection? Because when our battery is charged, we're more likely to be in a place where we're making choices based on where we want to go compared to when our battery is depleted and we're just trying to avoid discomfort and pain. That's absolutely right. And and also because we can't make good decisions when the battery is low, you know, like if we haven't actually got fuel, we don't make the best decisions. No, it's impossible to think clearly when you're exhausted, you haven't exercised, not eating right, haven't felt that connection or resting. When you're in that real overwhelmed state, it's really hard, almost impossible to make good quality decisions. Yeah. So you went back to those basics. Absolutely. Back to back to the basics. And as a true teacher, I got out a tick sheet Yep. <laughs> and put it on the fridge. Yeah. And I love that because also that takes off the decision fatigue that we all have. Like just tick it off the list. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to remind myself what I have to do today. It's on the, on the fridge. <laughs> it was on the fridge, a tick sheet, and just Monday to Sunday, my five things and just tick them off. And I noticed so clearly the days where I hadn't done it, how overwhelmed I felt by the situation. And then I noticed three days in a row when I had been charging my battery, how I was feeling a bit more upbeat and there's a bit more possibility and working it through. And so eventually I got to a position where it really was clear that we need to make changes in in the next few months. And I had a conversation with my husband, John, and I just shared where I was at, what I was trying to do, because I was trying to get position where I could make a really clear choice because I didn't want it to be a reaction where a lot of decision-making I think comes in reaction and I wanted it to be clear and to be able to say that I have done everything I can to try and make farm life work and family life and I can't. Yeah. And what a vulnerable place to be in. Oh, it's excruciating. (laughs) And I think for a lot of teachers, we're so used to making things work. We make the impossible possible daily. And so when we can't, it's hard. And it's hard to admit it to another person that I just can't do this. I'm at my limit. And the visual that I'd like to give people is if you think of a diver, they need some weights to pull them down to be able to look around, but then they also need to be able to kick up to the surface. And I feel that life hands us all these different weights. You know, some are just the small little rocks, as we talked about earlier, Ellen, about the layering of stress, like lots of little rocks coming in, but every now and then we get a massive rock. And so our ability to kick to the surface, you know, gets harder and harder depending on our circumstances and also depending on the choices that we're making. And I got to a point 
that to make everything work, it was a day-by-day survival. Yeah, and one of those big rocks had to give. Yeah, one of the rocks had to give. And for us, it was location. I wanted to be close to my family, close to services, and close to opportunities for work. And so that's we went on this path of making that happen, and now I'm happily here in Geelong and not saying that it wasn't hard and it wasn't lots of conversations, but it was so worth it to be honest with myself in that time and to be able to know that I can care for myself, work on the battery, work on that tick sheet and get clarity and just keep moving forward knowing that I have no idea what's next but just trusting that if I take care of myself, if I'm honest with myself in the process, we'll just keep working it through because the alternative is not worth thinking about. Yeah. And look, thank you so much for sharing that because I think that's the story of real change, right? And and real well-being because it's it's not the perfect, you know, smooth sailing linear trajectory. It's lots and lots of changes, little changes that you, you know, you tried to make things work where you were in the best way you could and then figuring out, no, 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 that's not working. So then what do we do next? And that was not an overnight, you know, easy solution either. You know, it's messy. All of this is messy. And and as humans, we don't like to sit in that messy. And and I'm sure we could go into a lot more detail, you know, of of the messy middle for you in in those changes. And we don't like to sit in those messy middle moments as humans, but reminding ourselves that that's what real life usually is. And when we can kind of like accept that it's not going to be this straight path from A to B where I necessarily know where the outcome is. You know, we don't always know where B is. We just know we don't want to be at A anymore. (laughs) And we have to just take one step at a time and the path will gradually appear. Thank you for sharing that because I just think it's a real story and it's a real example of putting the wellbeing practices into place and having the discipline to do that and the, you know, and the support, you know, it's not like you were trying to do this all by yourself to then one step in front of the other, finally get to the place where things are better. And you're able to look back and go, huh, that's what happened to me. And, and we figured it out, you know? I think that is the gold of well-being. You know, well-being is a daily practice of noticing what our body and our mind is trying to tell us and then responding accordingly. And the further down this track I get, I realise that we've just become so disconnected. So we're disconnected from our hearts, really, what our heart is trying to tell us, what our mind is trying to tell us, what our body is trying to tell us. And I think that because I've got so clear on the way that I nurture myself, understand myself, the messages are quite clear as well. And so the course correction is not as intense because I can, like I got to that point where I just knew this wasn't working and I had the skills to be able to acknowledge it, to be able to articulate it and then work on it, knowing that it's completely messy and it's not linear, but I also had faith in the process. Exactly. And it is a process. It's 100% a process. It's not the, you know, quick fix. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the process we want. And I often laugh that, you know, the brochure that I'd really like to write is not the one that anyone would want to pick up. Yeah. (laughs) 
because that's not the world where people really want to be. They don't want to be in the world of doing the work, discipline, and all of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later. Mm, no, that's right. We want, and, and we've been sold, I think, so like every piece of advertising is a buy my product, it will solve all your problems. Like it's a quick fix solution to whatever the thing is selling, you know, entertainment, hair care, like whatever it is. We're constantly bombarded with messages, I think, in our world that there is a quick fix solution and just that one more thing and all your all your problems will be solved. It's so true. I was even at the supermarket yesterday and I picked up a box of tissues that had wellbeing on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we've got wellbeing tissues. Honestly, it is so confusing. What is it? How do we make it happen? And I was like, wow, this is a whole new level, well-being tissues. Yeah, and those messages get into our subconscious so that then we have this, yeah, this subconscious, we're not even aware of it, but this story that we're playing out to ourselves that there's something wrong with us if if we don't have the quick fix solution to our problems. That If it's messy, if it's non-linear, if it takes time to figure out, we have these kind of stories running and scripts running in the background telling us that there's something wrong with us. But actually, no, that's the way it happens. Yeah, it's the human experience is messy when we're willing to be in connection with it. Mm, exactly. And it's worth it, but doesn't make it easy. <laughs> oh, it's so worth it because I feel it's the path to living a life that's congruent. And that's what I feel really has the ability to bring meaning and purpose and really light us up when we're connected mind, body, spirit. Yeah, yeah, and to each other as well. Absolutely. And you can be in connection with other people easier when you can be in connection with yourself because if you're constantly trying to be somebody else, it's hard then to be in connection with someone else because you're not sure which part of you they want and it gets all a bit confusing. So once you're happier with yourself and in connection with yourself and feeling well in yourself, it's much easier to be with other people as they are. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Well, speaking of being with other people, thank you for sharing your personal story of, of integrating well-being into your life. But speaking of being with other people, let's pivot now and talk about teachers and schools and how this plays out. Because I know you and I have been talking about teacher well-being and working with teachers and schools for several years now. I mean, we were just saying before we started recording that the episode that we recorded three and a half years ago, it's like, oh, it's the same stuff. Like it wasn't new then and it's not new now, but some things have changed in that time, haven't they? Yes, things have really changed. So when we first started out on this journey, well-being was almost like, oh, that's a bit fluffy. It's a bit of a luxury. Or schools were getting really confused with the difference between well-being and welfare. Yes. Yeah. And that really reactive space. So we've moved on from that. We know that well-being is different. We know that it's preventative and proactive. However, I feel like we've gone from well-being being under the table to now it's on the table and schools are scrambling to figure out how they do it. And then they want this layer of they want to do it right. They want to do it perfectly where well-being is nuanced, it's complex, and it's contextual. Yeah. It's the messy, right? It's the messy. It's not a quick fix. It's not going to be an overnight solution to all the, all the challenges in your school. But if we go on the journey together, you know, it can make a big difference and it is worth it. Um, I love that. It was under the table. Now it's on the table and everyone's like, what do we do with it? <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, we've got it in the brochures now. Uh, what do we do next? Yeah. <laughs> and is it just like a one-off talk or do we have to teach it in the curriculum? Do we not teach it? Is it caught? Is it taught? We're having all of these different conversations. Some schools are really on their journey. Some are still trying to work it out. And it is really complex and it's really messy because what works in one school will not necessarily work in the next school. It's not like a maths curriculum or a science curriculum. It's different because environments are different and what the students need, what the staff need, what the parents need are all different. Yes, there's some universal things that we can look at and focus on, but they only come to life if they're embedded within the context of the environment. That's true. Yeah, it's it's the universal and the particular. Yeah, so like the universally unique. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. So that's why I talk about wellbeing education is a science and an art because, yes, we have science that informs a lot of our practice. However, the real art is making it come alive in your environment. Yeah, and it's not going to be a formula that gets the same result every time. It's going to be a little bit of trial and error and listening to people and figuring out what they actually need as opposed to what we think they might need. Yeah, it's a big one, but important. And I'm so glad that schools are kind of on that journey now. Most schools, I think, are on that journey now. It's still variable. You know, like you said, some schools are a long way down the path and some are still just starting to figure it out but I think it's at least it's at least on the table now and that's a good thing yes it's definitely on the table and it's definitely on every brochure (laughs) (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) as far as in the classroom and in the staff room that varies yeah exactly so I I often say that teachers have been waiting I think for things to change for the curriculum to go back to how it used to be, you know, for us to go back to a pre-NAPLAN time or pre all this accountability measures and data obsession that gets us bogged down in paperwork. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the teachers that I talk to have kind of come to this awareness for themselves that they, they were kind of waiting for somebody else to come and make changes that would make their life better. But they actually eventually figured out that, oh, it, like, it's my life. I I have to make some changes for me. I can't wait for the school to change things or for my, you know, education department to change the expectations that, you know, all those things might need to happen, but I've I've got to take some control here. And I know you've described that as a kind of learned helplessness in teachers. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it's really interesting, Ellen, because I work with teachers within schools and I work with teachers who have sought assistance or being in my programs outside of schools. And it's really fascinating because there's been a lot of teachers who approached me and said, Meg, I'd love to do your programs, love to work with you. We need to get the school to do it. And then the school will say, oh, it's not in the budget or maybe in a few years. And it got me really curious. I thought, wow, isn't this interesting that a lot of teachers have got to a point where they're looking to the school to fix the problems that they're experiencing. And don't get me wrong, the system has a lot to be accountable for. And I shared in the first podcast that the way that I look at school systems is like an ecosystem and the leadership are the weather, the staff are our soil and our students have the opportunity to thrive or not within that environment. So we're all interconnected. There's so many links. However, 
a lot of power comes from the individual teacher saying, you know what, I'd like to learn new skills. I'd like to do things differently and then seeking that help. That's why I consciously make my prices very affordable for the everyday teacher. And so my program that goes over the course of a term is very affordable. It's manageable. You don't have to go and get permission. And so many teachers think, oh, but I need to get permission. I need to get it signed off. Well, And I was like, we don't actually. You can just do this in your own time for yourself. And the beauty what I've noticed is when you get a group of teachers that are working together who aren't in the same school, that are hearing other stories, the amount of relief on their face, their shoulders dropping, their jaws are just a little bit softer, like, oh, it's not just me. That's absolutely been my experience too. And I I often say to teachers that, you know, come for a discovery call with me, like, it's not just you, you know, you've just shared the story of what's going on for you. And of course, there are individual differences and context and whatever, but like, they often come to me thinking that there's something wrong with them. It's just them that are struggling with this. And I'm like, no, I talk to teachers from all over Australia. You're not alone, but we're not necessarily psychologically safe to share it with our colleagues for whatever reason. But in a in a group of teachers who are from different schools, different states, different school systems, that connection piece and that ability to share really vulnerably and honestly and support each other really beautifully is transformative. 100%. They have the ability then to go back into their own school and create that ripple effect because, to be honest, one of the challenges that I face is when I am working in a school and it's a compulsory session. Yeah. You know, that's tough. Depending on the school, depending on the environment, depending on how they've set it up, you know, generally we have a third, a third, a third. The third who are like, yes, woohoo, I've been waiting for this. A third who are like, oh, I could go either way. And a third like, no, I am not interested. I'd rather be doing other things. And that's just, that's just life. That's just how things work. I remember being a teacher when different PD would come in, I would either sit in one of those thirds. That's just how things work. And so for wellbeing programs to be meaningful, people will need to feel like it's going to add value to their life, not like it's just another job. Absolutely. And also like their, you know, that buy-in of wanting to be there. That's why when when teachers come to work with either of us off their own back, you know, without waiting for the school to give them permission or whatever, the engagement is different because they're choosing to be there as opposed to having been forced to stay back after school when I've got so many things to do and all the things that are going through teachers' minds when when it is compulsory. It's a totally different energy. Absolutely. And we know when it comes to wellbeing and meaningful change, one of the most crucial elements is readiness. And so sometimes I worry that we're pushing things onto staff or to our colleagues when the readiness is just not there, they're not interested. And so we've got to find a way to work with the willing and slowly generate that curiosity to burn through the school. So I, I like to think of the picture of, you know, so many schools do the fireworks of well-being. We're doing this, we're doing this, we've got this big speaker and woo, you know, and then it fizzles out. You go back two years later, it's like, where's that person or where's that, that framework? Oh, I don't know, you know. Didn't really continue. Didn't really continue. Where I really like to see this drip feed of hope, this drip feed of possibility, 
and more and more staff slowly getting on board and it's this ripple effect and slowly you can hear the language in the community change. You can see things happening that are different. You can make the invisible visible and it comes alive over time. Yeah, little by little. Yeah, absolutely. It's like fitness. We don't expect people to go out and run a marathon if they haven't done a fun run. So we just need to build it up over time. And one of the crucial points is readiness. So deciding as a teacher listening, how ready are you to take the next step? How ready is your school? And then trying to find a place that that sweet spot where you can just take the next step. Yeah, exactly. And just that one next step, not trying to jump ahead to the end of the race, just the next step. Absolutely. And so many of the people that are listening to this podcast, I'm sure are wellbeing coordinators or directors of wellbeing, and they're at the biggest risk of burnout because you so want to put things in place. You can see the potential. It's so exciting. There's so much you can do. There's frameworks everywhere. There's conferences everywhere. And there's only one of you. So it's about that balance. Think back to that rocks analogy and being able to kick. As teachers, we need to balance up our capacity with what we're hoping to achieve. Because if that's out of alignment, you're going to end up in that depleted, resentful, exhausted space, and then you can't have the impact that you want. Yeah, and that's about setting our expectations to not be expecting that, you know, everything to change. We've got this new wellbeing program in our school and everything's going to be solved by the end of this term. Like it's it's about setting those expectations to be about that slow burn instead of the fireworks. Absolutely. Slow burn, at least two to three years, you know, when they take an athlete from an amateur squad into a professional, if it's the AFL or the Australian cricket team, they're expecting it's going to be a two or three year for them to get used to the environment. And so we need to be thinking about if we're going to embed really solid practices and step up a level, it's going to take at least two to three years of consistent commitment and investment of time, energy, and resources. Yeah, absolutely. And having that expectation at the start means that when it feels slow, when it gets hard, when there are obstacles, when something changes in this, you know, like we were all on this path and then the principle changed and now we've kind of gone two steps forward, one step back or whatever, you know, things happen and and that it's that non-linear piece again. But if we have that expectation from the start, we know then there's nothing wrong. This is part of the process. It's slow. We need patience, you know, and persistence to get there. It's it's not, there's nothing wrong with us if if we've gone kind of two steps forward, one step back. That's kind of part of the process. It's normal. Yeah. It's completely normal. And as teachers, we don't like things to be messy. We like things to be tidy organized, structured. We like a ticker box. And so that's where the paradox is, is being able to lean into that mess, to the unknown and get the gifts along in the process. Yeah. Speaking of gifts, I think you've got a real gift that you can share with us today about change and also about the obstacles that hold us back from change. So I know there's five P's and five C's. Let's start with the P's because they're the problems. Yeah. (laughs) The peas, it's so funny because I definitely feel like I had the pea playbook for a very long time. I laugh that many of us get this pea playbook as we get older and go through. And pea is all about performance. As almost you look at your CV, it's 
what are you doing? It's all about the external. So the five Ps are number one is performing, this need to perform constantly. So as a teacher, performing, I'm on top of it. I've got it all together. I know what's happening. Inside you may be thinking, I've got no idea. I'll just get to the classroom. I'll see what happens next. I'm the only one struggling. No one else seems to. But on top, it's the classic swan with the underneath just going for it. So that's that performance, all good here. The show must go on. And the downside of that is other people don't know what's going on for us. And so that leads to disconnection because other people feel like, oh, she's got it all together. I won't help. I won't get involved. So that's the first one is performing. The next one is pleasing. A big one. This is such a big one. It's such a big one is this desperate need to please others. Or another reframe is not to disappoint others. So you'll do everything within your power to make sure that you're pleasing others, you're not disappointing them. The flip side of this is often we're disappointing ourselves. Often we're disappointing our own family or our own children and we give the work the best of us and the rest, good luck. You know, so I often say that if you're giving work 99% of your time, energy and headspace, who's getting the one? You know, so that's the challenge when it comes to pleasing. The third P is pretending. And that's when this is fine. No problems. Life's good. You know, let's just keep pretending that it's all good. Where underneath you're thinking, is this it? I cannot believe, like, is this it? Honestly, I've worked so hard and I'm feeling so unsatisfied. You know, so there's this part within you that's thinking, I'm meant for more. Honestly, I've got more to give. But on top, the external is all good here, no problems here. So that's the pretending piece. Which is so linked with that performing. Absolutely linked. And I often think of the visual as like you're constantly on stage and so your life is performative. You know, I think we've got to a place where well-being can be performative. Absolutely. (laughs) Like exercise, performative. Honestly, I've had the same active wear forever. You know, it's just because I exercise in it where now I feel like what you wear has become a part of. It's got to be Instagrammable. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make sense. But I feel like this pretending and performative piece is becoming really strong and front and centre and it leads to disconnection because we get confused with the performer versus who I am. And as we've talked about multiple times already on this call, is that who we are is messy. It's not scripted. It's not perfect. It's really messy and it's uncomfortable. So that's where pretending can really have its problems. The fourth one, perfectionism. Mm, I'm sure this is familiar to many listening. (laughs) And I actually just had a call last week with a specialist in perfectionism. And it was so fascinating because essentially perfectionism is driven by that fear. You know, it's that fear of what will other people think if I'm not perfect. Yeah. I I think Brene Brown has a line about perfectionism being about shame. You know, like it's so connected to that sense of I'm not good enough. Oh, absolutely. And then Elizabeth Gilbert says that perfectionism is just fear in a fancy coat. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, we like just give it a fancy name, like, oh, I'm just a perfectionist. 
But really, there's a lot of fear there, a fear of what other people will think, fear of judgment, fear of not reaching your own unattainable expectations. So the expectations are complete mirage. And so when perfectionism in teachers can look like when this unit plan's sorted, when it's tidy, when it all looks documented and all together, the reality is it's never going to happen. It's a mirage because curriculum changes, teachers change, students change, excursions change, and it's never quite tidy with a bow and we always want tidy with a bow. So a lot of us create more work because we're in this desperate pursuit of perfect and tidy. And so perfection is exhausting. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely exhausting because if you're just going to reformat and just do this, what are you missing out on? What's the cost? That may be your sleep. That may be your exercise. That may be a conversation with people in your home or your friends. You know, I used to laugh that I only had time for life on holidays. I don't have a life during term. I work. And that's such a common joke, but it's not actually that funny. No, no, it's not funny. And that's why some of the teacher memes, they grind me a bit because it reinforces these maladaptive coping strategies that are celebrated in school cultures because it's the norm, but it's not the normal. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. When I work with other organisations, I look at, wow, school systems are very different, very different, like the pressure, the timetable, everyone knows where you are. It's a different, it's just a different beast. And so I get concerned that some of our coping strategies to work within these systems are actually really detrimental to our health, our relationships, and ultimately to our connection with our students because it's hard to be in connection with our students when we're constantly thinking about how am I looking, how am I performing, what do other colleagues think about me, is this perfect enough? And then the final P, which we've just almost touched on, is producing. I am what I produce. My day is only good if I've ticked things off my list. Yeah. Oh, and how often have you heard teachers say, like, they've just spent, like, seven hours straight, you know, contact time. There's been, like, a full day of classes and a playground duty and whatever, parent phone calls or whatever, and they get to the end of the day and they say, I've got nothing done today. It's like, really? You Like, you actually worked a full day already. You just didn't get anything, quote, unquote, produced that's visible that you can show for it that wasn't this all this intangible, you know, contact time that is the job as well. Such a big one. It is a huge one. It is just a lie because when we're in the classroom with students, when we're in a meeting with colleagues, that is the work. You know, being in deep connection is what education is about because education and learning doesn't happen without relationships And if we get so focused on our to-do list and what happens next, we lose sight of what's really important. And I giggle because I'm a high producer. Like I've learned all these P's because I am the P master. You know, I love to add a little thing on the list that I've already done just so I can turn it off. You know, who doesn't love the buzz? But the challenge is when that determines our sense of self for the day. You know, when we're linking how much we produce with how worthy we are, how good we are. And that can be a challenge, especially when it comes to grades or we've talked, you know, NAPLAN or even scores at the end of year 12. If teachers are looking at that outcome as a reflection of their teaching, 
that's not fair. Every school is so different. Every student that you work with is different. For some students you work with, you know, for them to get a C, that's taken a heap of work, you know, a heap of work to get them sitting still enough to listen and to focus. You know, in another environment, to get a student to get an A plus is actually not that hard. Like they're self-motivated, they do the work, they've got three tutors. And so we can't take that external number letter as a reflection of us and the quality of our teaching. Yeah, and we have to challenge because that is one of the messages that, you know, the education system gives us, that society gives us, media, politicians, you know, they're always using those external measures of productivity because it's the it's easy to measure and it's you know it's it's what our world kind of revolves around because of the the systems capitalism and and all the rest that we're all the soup we're all swimming in but we have to challenge those messages internally when we notice them like it's about it's about recognizing these p's not we all have them right it's just about recognizing it being aware of it going oh okay that's what i'm doing that's not very helpful what can I do instead? Or I don't have to believe that. That's not necessarily the truth about my worth as a human being, even though that's what this, you know, story I'm telling myself is saying. Absolutely. It's being able to step back and notice your behaviour, where for a long time I couldn't notice my behaviour. I just did. Like I just, I was just pleasing, performing, producing all the P's because that's what I thought that I had to do, the next step, the next step, the next leadership role to go up this ladder to, I don't know, Nirvana. I don't know where I was headed, but I thought that that would be the happy place. And now I can step back and just notice because these P's are really helpful. Like they get us to get us going. They get us doing things. So we don't want to not have them. We want to be able to choose when we use them. You know, it's like if you think about a volume switch We want to be able to turn it up and turn it down. I often laugh, you know, that saying of lean in. We don't always need to lean in. Sometimes we need to lean out and sometimes we need to lie down. We get to choose. And so perfecting can be helpful. There are times where it would be really helpful if you're doing something really important. It's the final assembly of the year. It's a big celebration. The year 12s are finishing. You want to make sure that you've crossed the T's and dotted the I's. But if you're emailing a colleague, do you really need to check it 20 times? You know, it's about stepping back, noticing which P behaviour you're displaying and then asking yourself, is this helpful or is this getting a bit unhelpful now? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So those are the five P's. What are the five C's? Because I think these will really, I think, well, these light me up. When I've heard you talk about this before, I'm like, oh, my goodness, yes. So tell us about the five C's. Well, the P's take us to performance and the C's take us to congruence. And so the C's, it's all about process. It's not about outcome. It's not about what do other people think. It's about what do I think. And it starts with the harder skill for teachers to learn. And I'm saying this because every teacher I've worked with when I say it, they have this visceral response of like, oh, that's hard, and that's self-compassion. Yep, 100%. The hardest and most transformative skill for educators to learn and integrate into the everyday life. And I've got a hypothesis. Can I share with you my idea about this one? Please do. I've got an idea that 
teachers struggle so much with compassion because as humans we all have a negative bias which we're aware of that negative is much stronger than a positive but I also think as teachers we're trained you know we're trained with that red pen we're trained for what's wrong so we've got this expert layer upon our natural bias and so when we're looking at ourselves we're looking through that lens and so we're constantly thinking what haven't we done we could do more that could be tweaked where self-compassion is I'm human permission to be human yes you could have done that and looking at today it's not going to happen you've had three student issues that have blown up you're not going to get to that report for the board meeting. You know, so it's about taking time to be with your struggle. And I think one of the biggest challenges when it comes to compassion and educators is just to acknowledge that I am struggling. I am feeling overwhelmed. I am feeling stressed. You know, not I am stressed. I am overwhelmed. I am feeling. So starting to notice. And so compassion is about noticing, oh, this is hard for me. This is really hard and I don't know what to do next. Or reports are due in a few weeks. I don't know how I'm going to get that done. So it's about noticing where you are and then giving yourself that beautiful encouragement and soothing that you would give a student. Yeah, exactly. So treating yourself like you would treat a friend and this is hard. You know, we can give all of the compassion to everybody around us. But for some reason, educators really struggle to give themselves some grace. Yes, I agree. You know, the idea of cutting themselves some slack is, oh, but then I'm weak. Then I'll, people think I'm failing. I can't, you know, that's, you know, so it's very much the stick or the carrot, very traditional, where we know that if we can soften our approach and be with our struggle, we're more likely to move forward and move forward quicker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the research around self-compassion is pretty clear on that. It's not letting ourselves off the hook and then we're going to just, you know, be lazy slobs and not ever get anything done and totally go down this, you know, hopeless spiral. It's actually not what happens at all. It's so funny because for so many of us, that's what the first thoughts are. Like, oh, well, if I'm just going to be compassionate, next thing you know, I'm on the couch eating ice cream, watching Netflix till 12. It's like, no, it's just simply acknowledging where you are, supporting yourself where you are, remembering that you're actually not that unique. There's millions of people going through this struggle at the moment. There are millions of educators going through a struggle at the moment. You are not alone. And a a story that I love to share is when I was in labour with our first son, I had just learned the research behind self-compassion And it was really hard for me because I was very much of that mindset of, no, just work harder. Just stop complaining, just work harder. And I was really trying to soften and ease myself into this compassion idea. And I remember in the throes of labour, I was, oh, you know, just like, oh, gosh, um, this is hard. (laughs) This is really hard. And then I had a moment of thinking, you know what, I'm not the only one doing this. There are thousands of women in this moment, giving birth around the whole world. My dad has this saying that every two seconds somewhere in the world a woman has a baby. She's got to be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, But it's true because 
like this is a universal experience. If you're listening to this feeling like your life's a bit shitty, you're not the only one. If you feel like you want to move schools, you're not the only one. If you feel like you love your school and things could be better, you're not the only one. So here I am in the throes of labour thinking, oh, I am certainly not the only one and this is horrible. And then I had this incredible baby. This baby was in my arms. We got back to our room and when I had a moment to just catch my breath and just settle, I reached for my phone to call mum and I had a text message from one of my best friends in another state who had just had a baby boy as well. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And I was like, this is the universal experience. So self-compassion is acknowledgement, being where we are, knowing that you're not alone, we're all in the same boat at different times, and moving yourself forward. What's the next best step that I can do? People think it's quite passive. It's not. It's an active process of walking with yourself to the next step. So it's. I feel like the P, the P road, the roundabout is compassion. If you can get on this compassion cycle, life will start to transform. So after compassion, we need commitment. I feel like commitments almost become a dirty word. (laughs) People don't want to commit. Because it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. And you may be in that place of, I know where I am is not what I want, but I don't really know what I want, so I'm not going to commit to anything. And then that links back to this need of permission from other people. So I often think that indecision is just waiting for somebody else to tell you what to do or permission to do what you need to do, where commitment could be simply saying, I don't know what's coming. However, I am committed to charging my battery daily. So you have to have a commitment. You're at point A, what is point B? If you don't know what it is, tap into the feeling. If you want more energy, more calm, whatever it is, just make a commitment The third C is courage. Mm, Which we all need on our wellbeing journeys. (laughs) We need. So courage and compassion are the ultimate wings that get us anywhere because courage is moving beyond the comfortable, moving beyond the familiar to do something different because our brains are wired to do what they do because that's what they do. Our brains doesn't have a moral compass. It's just trying to keep us safe. Yeah, it's just trying to keep us safe. And it just wants us to do what we've always done. So if you uh, participate in that revenge bedtime procrastination where you scroll, 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 that's what your brain wants to do. It's been trained to do that. So it's going to take courage for you to put your phone away. And so courage is crucial in building this new future. It's the courage to say no at work. It's the courage to have that uncomfortable conversation with somebody, the person that you're teaching with, your teaching partner, to say that, you know, I've written the the last three unit plans. Would you be able to help with one? You know, it's courage to lean into those uncomfortable things that are causing you distress. Yeah. Well, like in your story, it's, you know, it was the courage to not make a reactive decision initially, but to to try and make some changes where you were. And then the courage to say, "Mm, I've done as much as I can, something else has to change here. Absolutely. And so courage, just like every other C, is a skill that can be developed. It's a muscle that can be strengthened. And that's what I want to really contribute to this wellbeing conversation in general is that 
every skill that I talk about, every strategy that I share, it's all learnable. It's a daily practice. Well-being is a verb. It's a doing word. It's not passive. And so it's a daily practice. And that's where the next C comes in and it's consistency. It is showing up for yourself every day, not making excuses, just showing up day after day after day. Because the more we witness ourselves doing these courageous acts, the more it becomes normal. It becomes easy. It becomes a part of your life. So consistency is absolutely foundational because when we talk about that neuroplasticity, we need repetition. It's not going to happen with a one-off. Well, that's how muscles are built. Absolutely. We don't just do like one run, like, yep, we're ready for the marathon. It's practice. You know, as teachers, it's consistency to keep showing up to that difficult class to eventually like, oh, I've worked out how to work this class. And you get to term four, you're like, oh, I have to get another group. We've just finally got into a groove and you know me, I know you, and it's working. And then you go back to term one and you're like, oh, gosh, I forgot year sevens and what they can do or not do. And so this is where consistency is really important. And the fifth C, and I think something that you do beautifully, is about creating this connection, a community, because transformation really requires other people to be a witness on our journey. We can't do things alone. We are not designed to do things alone. We are humans, wide for connection, as Brene would say, and it's so important that we have people in our journey because if you're constantly in the P's and in that performative way, people don't understand, people don't know. Well, it's disconnecting. Yeah, it's disconnected. And it's not saying that you need to let everybody know and put it in the staff newsletter. Have a few key people. It may be a coach. It may be a psychologist. It may be a partner. Have people that get to know you as you're getting to know yourself through the ups and downs, through the mess. Yeah, and I think being discerning about who those safe people are, like the psychological safe people where you're, you're, like, you're allowed to have a go and stuff it up and still be on the journey and still be figuring it out, which is not always going to be the people that you're surrounded by at work, but it, it might be people that you seek out, you know, other teachers that you seek out in different contexts, like like the coaching groups that you and I run, or as you say, it might be people in your life, your sister, your partner, your whoever, that are safe and trusted that you can be in this practice with. Absolutely, because it's really hard because sometimes the people that we want to let in the most you know, they have a part to play in keeping us in these P's, keeping us in our familiar patterns. And so that's another challenging layer because there are some people that just find it really hard if we're finding it hard or struggling. They just want to fix it. They want to solve it. They want to do something. Where if you can find people that allow for that psychological safety to be with the process, to just give you the opportunity to acknowledge how you're feeling, articulate how you're feeling, and also they have the faith and trust that you are capable, that you are going to work through this. It is just a part of being human. Uh, and it is human, isn't it? And that's that's that self-compassion piece again, that it's part of the human condition and recognising that we're not alone. We're not the only one feeling this and also we don't have to do it by ourselves. Absolutely. If I could tell teachers just one thing, it would be permission to be human. Yeah, absolutely. Remind yourself 
the human experience is messy, it's hard, it doesn't fit into an Excel spreadsheet and it is so worthwhile doing the work because you get to know yourself every new layer. I feel like I get to know myself differently every few months. I look back at what I did a few months and I think, whoa, oh, wow, you know, this is constantly changing. It's learning, it's growing, it's stimulating. And also you'll notice on the journey when you're really more towards the C's, it's just a process. So it doesn't feel as right or wrong. It just is. Where the P's very much feel there's a right and a wrong way. Where the C's, it's a bit messy, it's a bit grey, it's just about making the next step. Yeah, yeah. And it's okay for it to be messy and grey. Yeah, it's meant to be. (laughs) Yeah, that's normal. It's normal. It's completely normal. And a story that I like to share is my mum is a the incredible midwife. She works with women in the first six weeks after they've had their baby. So she loves to talk about feeding and settling like I like to talk about well-being. And she'd often say to me, Meg, if I go to do a home visit on day three, four or five and the mum comes to the door all together, makeup on, hair done, everything's perfect, she's like, this is going to be a really long appointment because it's going to take me at least 45 minutes to get to the reality. But if she has a woman, day three, four or five, coming to the door, hasn't washed their hair, got a bit of vomit, think, looking at you like, am I doing it right? It's like, perfect. This is normal. This is where you should be and it's going to be a quick visit. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that wisdom? <laughs> <laughs> and so we need to take that time to look at our situation And then give ourselves that grace of, well, does it make sense that I'm feeling and functioning this way? Yeah, it actually does. Okay, what can I do next? What am I moving towards? Yeah. I know you have a great quote about the self-compassion piece of these Cs. Do you want to share that with us? Oh, I'd love to share. So when I was putting the framework together, I was getting quite frustrated in my performance mindset (laughs) of, where does compassion go? Because I really wanted compassion to go in every step. And then I thought, well, if change was a song, compassion would be the chorus. I love that so much. So when life feels out of control, come back to compassion, start again. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's such a a difficult but beautiful place to wrap up (laughs) because, as we've said, you know, it's, it's one of those things that educators really struggle with. But they're not alone in that struggle. You know, if you find self-compassion hard, welcome to the human race. (laughs) Welcome to the club, Ellen and I, you know, captains in the club. Yeah, that's right. It is hard, but it's worth it. And it's a muscle that we can build as all of these are. And I think I really hope that they will be helpful for teachers, even just to start noticing, because that's that first step, just to notice where we're at, notice how we're showing up. Notice when these things are are playing out in a way that's helpful or maybe it's hindering us and then to just look at that. Okay, what's that next best step that I can take? Thank you so much, Meg. This has been such a fantastic conversation. Tell us where we can find you and a little bit about your program to Energy by Design. Um, So the best place to find me is Instagram. That's where I spend most of my time and the one that I enjoy the most. So it's just Meg Durham and it's two underscores. And the program that I run is called Energy by Design. So it's a practical and potent program for educators that want to experience more energy. And it's designed for educators that choose to opt in 
And then also I do it within schools who do it as a program. So the program runs every term one and every term three. And so you're welcome to have a look at my website and check it out. So Energy by Design is about creating a space to start noticing different things and engaging conversations that keep moving you forward. Mm, I love it. And we will put the links in the show notes and in the description of this episode so people can click away and connect with you and find out more about that. Thank you so much, Meg. This has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Ellen. And I'd love to acknowledge all the work that you have done over the years. You have just kept chipping away and being such an important voice in this really important topic. And I feel like now well-being's on the table, that your message, it's going to get a place. I hope so. Yeah, thank you very much. It's nice to hear. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify, hit the three dots, share it to your Facebook or Instagram stories and let your friends know that you're listening. And if something in this episode made you think about a teacher that you care about and you think they need to hear it, send it to them now. Let's spread the message of teacher well-being and together we can create thriving school communities. Show notes for the podcast can be found at www.selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash podcast. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at selfcareforteachers. As always, remember you're a person first and a teacher second and you are worthy of your own care.